I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, this is the LRB podcast. I'm David Runciman, and today I'm talking with Benjamin Markovitz. We both have essays in the new collection of sports writing from the LRB. It's called Anyone for Gully Dander. You'll have to buy it to find out what that means. Ben is a novelist, writer. He's a regular contributor to the LRB. And Ben, your essay is about basketball and Michael Jordan. My essay is about cycling and Lance Armstrong. I am not qualified to write mine. I cycle to work in Cambridge. I think my distance from professional cycling is about as far as it is from whale hunting. How's your doping? Yeah, my doping. Well, when I cycle in each day, I think it would help, but it doesn't. You have played professional basketball, which means you're writing about your sport in a really different way than I'm writing about mine in this collection. So maybe if we start there, just tell us a bit about when you played, how you played, how good were you? So I wasn't you must have been good. quite good. I wasn't really good, otherwise I wouldn't be st- stuck talking to you. <laughs> uh, I played, so it was my first job coming out of university. I didn't want to go to grad school. I didn't want to go to law school. And I'd always loved playing basketball, and I had a German passport. And so as soon as I graduated, I flew to Hamburg, stayed with my uncle, and saw if I could sign on with the team, which I eventually managed to do. And it produced what was probably the six unhappiest months of my life. I just, I couldn't take it. And we're talking, so this is the mid-90s, right? This was 1996, yeah. And it just was really hard being a basketball player because that's all you did. I was stuck in this small town outside Munich. There was nothing to do there. There was no university there. The only people I knew were the basketball team. And if you're on a team, you're part of this fairly oppressive hierarchy of talent. And I was at the wrong end of this hierarchy, So the only connection I had to other people was with people who thought I sucked. And it it turned out that when you're 22 years old, this isn't what you want from life. And and you were doing it for a living. I mean, you you were straight out of college. Some of them, presumably, this was their job, right? Yeah, it was their job. They really depended on the income. Yeah. I mean, you did too, presumably, but you were young and you might end up doing other things. But these were journeymen. I was – so they were journeymen. Like a lot of these sort of minor leagues – it was a mix of people who were making fairly good money at it and precocious high school kids who were doing it for fun. I made 1,800 marks a month at the time, and they gave me an apartment to live in for free. And that was what I cleared. There were, I'm fairly sure people on the team making 50,000, 60,000 marks a month, but I don't think anyone was getting really rich. And this, was, this is what you write about in your essay. This was the time of Michael Jordan's pomp, 96. Um, and you describe, and this is one of the things I found really fascinating about it. So I'm writing about sport. I am no good at sport. How, how, so, so what, how much sport did you do? What was your, what um, was your highlight I, I, of your sporting <laughs> career? 
the highlight of my sporting career was being occasionally slightly less bad at tennis than I normally would be. But the distance from, so it's, you know, a sport like tennis, there are the people who are journeyman pros and they're in a different universe from me. And then there's Djokovic. Right. So you, you were with people and you, you write about watching Jordan. You know, you, you would watch him play and then you guys would go out and play. So if you're if you're remote from a professional sport, everyone looks really good. And there's always this question, well, how do the the superstars, the transcendent players of the sport look to the people who are really good, but just not quite as good? So you, you talk about that. Yeah, um, I mean, I reread I reread my my piece, which I wrote years ago. And I did something in the piece, which I'm suspicious of when sports writers do it, which is try to make out that athletes belong to a different category, that the difference between them is a, is a category difference rather than a difference of degree. And mostly I think that's not true. It might have been true of Jordan, and I kind of cling to that because I, you know, I loved him so much. One of the really weird things about my time playing in the Zweites Bundesliga Süd in Bavaria was that I played against a 17-year-old kid named Dirk Nowitzki, who a certain number of years after I played against him, won the NBA championship and turned out to be maybe the greatest European basketball player ever, though there, there's some other Europeans coming through the pipeline. It was just weird that I happened to go to this podunk league in the middle of nowhere, and there was this kid. And Could you tell? You could tell some things. So there were stories about him even before I ever played him. I, I faced him on the court a couple of times, mostly in this preseason tournament, and our our bus ran out of gas on the way to the tournament, and we had to get out and push the last mile. This is the kind of thing that was happening. And on that bus, one of my teammates told me that we're going to go up against this guy, and Jordan's Bulls had just beaten the Seattle Supersonics, and the coach of the Seattle Supersonics was a guy called George Carl who apparently had called up Dirk Nowitzki after the finals and said, you should come play for us. And the story was, my teammate said, that, that Dirk said, I'll call you when you win. And so this was the kid we played against. And it wasn't hard to see that he was a little different. from He was like seven feet tall. And I played with a lot of seven feet tall people, but they, they're in the game because they're really tall. Whereas he was also the fastest player on the court and he was the best shooter on the court. But... The star of our team that year was a, a guy called Johnny Robertson, who never made it in the NBA and had bumped around Europe for 10 years making a living. And he took Dirk Nowitzki to school in the first game of that tournament. He just owned him. And so even though there was a huge gap, a talent gap between Dirk Nowitzki and Johnny Robertson for 40 minutes, Johnny won. And it makes me wonder about that argument in sports, whether it's a category difference or a degree difference. Do you have a view on that? Um, so I, I guess I think about it mainly through tennis, which is probably the yeah. sport I watch most. And how do they, and it, it is true on their day, the top 100, any of them can beat Djokovic on their day, but their day almost never comes. But it could come. I mean, again, with Federer, I mean, thinking about great sports writing, you know, David Foster Wallace on right. Federer, he absolutely embraces those. You know, he's writing about something that's on a different mystical plane. I'm not sure. I, I agree with you. I, I can never quite decide but I often wonder that's why it's so interesting to talk to you for the players on the other side of the net there must be moments in the game where they think we're totally playing the same game and there just must be occasional moments where they think we're not yeah so I 
I, I mean, it's a great essay by Foster Wallace, though I'm really suspicious of it because he, <laughs> he gives a whole kind of uh, neurosynaptic account of Federer's genius. And my guess is Foster Wallace could have given a similar account of me tying my shoelaces and it would have sounded great. <laughs> but, but we all managed to tie our shoelaces and we're not all Federer. I wrote, actually I wrote a novel about a, a tennis player and I read a lot of tennis books. And one of the differences I read about was that your kind of journeyman tennis player could hit the right shot four or five times in a row, but he couldn't hit it 10, 12 hmm. times in a row. Something would, would break down. And that's a really, it's, it's really hard to get your head around that. Because if you can do it four or five times in a row, where's the difference that means you can't do it yeah. 10 or 12 times? Yeah, and that kept it because that both is just a matter of scale. But also over a career, it's the difference between, right. apart from anything else, earning $50 million and earning $50,000. And, and tennis is a sport really that seems to have been designed to accentuate any yeah. slight advantage that the opposing player has. So that by the end of the match, you can lose six love, six love, six love. And maybe you're not even that much worse. It's just yeah. the game keeps rewarding all these slight advantages. I once talked to, uh, I used to have a gig writing some things for Observer Sports Monthly when it still existed. And uh, there's a basketball player called Steve Nash, who is one of those heroes for people who think of themselves as average athletes. Because I don't, he could dunk. He was tallish. I think he's like six two, six three, but he wasn't a standout athlete, and yet he won the MVP uh, in the NBA. And partly he did it because he had off the charts hand eye coordination, and he made ninety percent of his free throws. And I asked him once, okay, if you make ninety percent of your free throws in a game, that presumably means in practice you basically never miss. So what puzzled me more about him was not that he made ninety percent, but that he missed the ten percent, because you figure it's just automatic for him; he just doesn't miss. And I said, so why do you miss that 10%? And he said, sometimes, he's a very smart guy. He said, sometimes you get to the line, it just feels wrong. And there's a lot of confirmation bias. And this gets actually to something that you talk about in your introduction. There's a lot of confirmation bias that not just athletes, but anybody who plays a sport is guilty of as an explanation of what's going on. You miss the shot, so you think you're always going to miss the shot. But one of the things you talk about in your intro is why writers give better accounts of sports than the people who are actually good at it. Do you want me to answer that? Question? I want you to answer that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't... Uh, I mean, that, that's why I enjoyed actually reading the collection and, and writing about it, because you just have so many different perspectives on it. And yet, in the moment... And I've written about this in the LRB, actually. I wrote a, an essay about the hot hand phenomenon, which turns out to be an illusion. Home advantage, which is very hard to explain. So all athletes know that they're at, at the mercy of these forces that are real and mysterious and they can't control home advantage is probably the the strongest one um i want to get onto the hot hand thing because i have i have strong feelings about hot hand illusion but keep going (laughs) but anyway it's there's something deeply mysterious about what's going on to the people doing it which is at the most basic level statistically more visible from the outside than it is from the inside yes and a lot of these forces are really hard to understand Home advantage is a really interesting one. And we're, we're going through this weird natural experiment with it now. Sports yeah. played without crowds. You know, the, the, the obvious explanation is it's the crowd, but it probably isn't. There seems to be quite a lot of evidence that it's not the crowd. It's something to do with comfort in your surroundings, independent of whether people are watching or not. Is it the um, crowd working on the referees? Is that part of it? So, so, yeah. So the referees are more vulnerable to the crowd than the players. Yeah. 
And it's a team sport thing, not an individual thing. So tennis players really don't have it. Right. It's to do with how human beings, you know, five of them, 11 of them, relate to each other in surroundings with which they're familiar relative to how they relate to each other in surroundings that are yeah. relatively unfamiliar. And the crowd doesn't add the familiarity. So soccer in the UK, football, yes. um, is going on at the moment I've in that heard way. That. And home advantage has dipped a bit, but not massively without and it's partly I think because it's just generally unfamiliar so it takes when a team moves to a new stadium it takes six to nine months for home advantage to build up again huh. even if the stadium is full yeah because everybody has to feel at home it's a kind of deep psychological thing but I think that the people playing don't understand it right um, it's just real I imagine it's even stronger in basketball because yeah. finding the space behind the basket as a way of locating where you're supposed to shoot is a really strange operation. And I also assume it's so it's how it, you know, it's, it's to do with how you pass. That's the key thing. And so how you relate to the four other players in a space where just even visually there are familiar markers. There's that, but just shooting the basketball, yeah. because unlike a goal, I don't, you don't quite have to focus on the goal in the same way. But you have to pinpoint that the basket is 19 feet 3 inches and not 19 feet 7 inches. And that has to do with how you locate it in the background. And the background changes in, in every arena. Part of, I think, the reason for why athletes aren't always that insightful, don't appear that insightful about the game, has to do with that they haven't identified what they know that we want to know. And I think that's a big part of what writers do. They try to identify what you know that the audience might. And I think the athletes expect that we'll be bored by a lot of the stuff that's actually going on in their heads. There's this, uh, you know, the, there's this great scene in The Once and Future King where I think it's Arthur who gets to communicate with the gulls. And it turns out that the gulls spend the whole time talking about wind velocity and wind and wing angles I think some of that's changing, at least in basketball, and my guess is in football, too. If you listen to just ordinary basketball commentary now, it's much more technical than it was when I was a kid, because there's now an understanding that we have an appetite to know what's actually going on, as opposed to the sort of cliches about wanting it and character that they used to sell us. Is that happening in football, too? Is, is football? Yeah, a bit. And I also think it has to do with how it's covered. There's just so many more angles from which you can see it, the right. way it can be replayed and analyzed, you know, the, the analysis that goes on in the studio afterwards. It's, it's like a computer game. So there is more talk of angles and dynamics. But there's still all that talk about you know, COD psychology, too. I, let's just come back to Michael Jordan for a bit. Okay, yeah, there, yeah. Is, there is that other side of your piece. So there are sort of you know, the different dimensions of Michael Jordan. You're watching him in your pomp, and then you write about watching him on his comeback, yeah, uh, sort of early 2000s, when, as you say, he was older, heavier, but he still had something. Yes. And there's the question of what the something is. And, and you, I think you say it's something to do with the extent of his will. And so you, you, you saw The Last Dance, I'm guessing. I did, this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a friend who's writing about that, and he, he wants to write about The Last Dance and Nietzsche. Uh -huh. And I think his piece is called Thus Dunks Zarathustra, <laughs> which is a tongue twister. Yes. Um, but so that's the other way this can go. You know, the, the transcendent performer has something which is not, you know, on the physical level, it, it's on a spectrum. But there's something that takes that person apart. And then with The Last Dance, which many people watched when sport was shut down, um, it was the closest we got. And it was fascinating. And Jordan was this complicated, fairly unpleasant character but he had something he has something and so your word for it is will yes do you still 
I, I, and I think it's character too. I mean, in, in a in a in the way that your high school teacher means when he says that sports builds character. A couple things I want to say about that. One is that one of the first things I learned when I got to Germany to play basketball is that the other pros could try harder than I could, and that trying hard isn't purely a sort of decision, but it's actually a muscle that you have to train, and that they had trained it more. Uh, but when you describe it as a muscle, you sort of leave out that it has a kind of moral quality to it, which it still does, that you respect morally people who can try harder than you can. And I say that if you were my childhood friend, you would have had to put up with me trying harder than you at every single thing we played. I was just a ridiculously competitive human being. And then I got to this minor league professional world, and it just turned out that they could try harder. They tried more instantaneously. They had less self-pity. They could push themselves through more pain. They thought about it less in ways that allowed them to perform better. And so part of what the Jordan phenomenon was, it's one thing to play well in a game. Anybody can play well in a game. But to beat your teammates in practice 300 days a year is such an effort of character and will and relentlessness and all kinds of unpleasant qualities. You can't fake it. And Jordan would do that. Uh, so there's a, there's a story, I think they mentioned it in the last dance, I can't remember if they do or not, that when Jordan played on the Dream Team, I think it was 92, one of the first things he learned is that these other superstars that he was glad to play against don't practice as hard as he does. And he thought, okay, I've got an edge now. The other thing about basketball, which I think is true of most team sports, but particularly true of basketball, is that you have to be able to dominate a locker, a locker room full of other incredibly talented, competitive people. And that happens on the court, and it happens off the court. It happens in a conversation about where to eat. You just have to win all the arguments. And Jordan was so single-minded, he just always won. He was quick-witted. He tried harder. He cared more. And so... Part and of he didn't care so much about the feelings of the people he was. I mean, that came about, through yeah. pretty strongly. Uh, you know, most of us were slightly shocked by how uncaring it was possible to be with the people on whom you depended. Yeah, I guess so. Though, I mean, it's just basketball. Yeah. And I think even though Jordan is totally obsessed with winning in basketball, he would have had some sense that if I make fun of these guys, I'm just playing basketball with them. And so the game is to make fun of them and to put them down and to assert your position but it doesn't make you an awful human being. No, and he, and, and he wasn't. A, he didn't come across as an awful person. But there was, there was just that. Yeah, relentless. And he still had it. I mean, that's the other thing. Him being interviewed now about things that yeah. happened what twenty three years ago. Or I don't know when he was interviewed. Say last year, but more than twenty years ago, it was completely raw to him. Oh yeah. I mean, just it's as though it literally as though it were yesterday. And well, that's he, a that's a sort of stamina thing too. He can hold those grudges forever. Forever. I mean, I'm pretty good at holding grudges. How are you? <laughs> Not so good. Not so good. The, no. That's why I wouldn't have made it as a professional anything, really. The, the, the Saul Bellow line, he says at one point that no matter how successful I get, sometime, somehow I still feel like the slighty. And, and I think there is, I don't think it's just sports, but I think in any field that there's something about the people who come to the top of the field that means they never let anything go. Jordan gave a Hall of Fame speech. He, he entered the Hall of Fame uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame, which is a big deal for players, and he gave a speech. And he came into a lot of criticism afterwards because he spent the whole speech making fun of people who were worse than him. <laughs> and I thought it was funny. I mean, it's just, it's a it's a game, and it's what he does. It's who he is. But suddenly people acted like they had just seen who he really was. Yeah, which and, they did a bit with The Last Dance. You know, he, there was a, 
I think I wrote in, right in the introduction, he, he's both enhanced and diminished by it. There, there is something magnificent about him, even now reminiscing. And there's also something about him where you think, oh, he's just that guy. And yet, so with Dennis Rodman in that, yeah. so he's also quite forgiving. You know, he was oddly forgiving of some things. And it's it's all, in a way, pragmatic calculation. He spotted what Rodman needed. Right. And Rodman needed actually a certain amount of indulgence, which he did not offer to some of the others, didn't offer to Scotty Pippen, but he did to Rod- Rodman. And so Rodman then becomes part of the greatest team. Right. I mean, he had some sense of which buttons he could push to get the most out of you. But even that isn't really what you want from a teammate, right? <laughs> Be- because... Jordan knew that he had to let Rodman blow off steam in order for them to be a better basketball team. Not necessarily because he thought Rodman needed to blow off steam. On the other hand, I, so what did you think of Michael Jordan's game? I mean, so you, you say you were sort of fascinated by him, but also slightly repelled? Yeah, but I was mainly compelled by him. Yeah. Um, I mean, even sitting in his chair, drinking his bourbon or whatever it was, right. aged, what is he, late 50s now, it's impossible to take your eyes off him. And you could so the person on the court, and you write about this too, even when you saw him past his prime, he just commands the attention yeah. of everybody in the room. And if it's 20,000 people in the room or if it's 20 million watching on Netflix, and it made him seem different from the others. No one else had that. So then or now, Pippin or Rodman didn't have that. He has something. I wonder... So I wonder if one difference between being the journeyman athlete, and I really I want to emphasize I was not a good basketball player, and somebody who, who's predominantly a fan, is that it's hard to imagine yourself into an understanding of just how psychologically hard it is to compete against people all the time. And I think a lot of fans, a lot of writers who are fans, are very successful people in a competitive field, but they're not in a field where their colleagues are trying to stop them writing every day that you sit down to write and pulling their hands from the printer and making fun of them. And they're not in a field where the difference between being quite good and slightly better is immediately apparent. And so to come through, as Jordan came through, means that from the age of 14, he could cope with just the relentlessness of being on teams with other guys who are trying to do you down over and over and over again. And I don't know, it's not a likable human quality, but it's an admirable one. And that shows up in the end. You know, he's the guy who could do that. I couldn't. I really just couldn't. I couldn't cope with the failure. I couldn't cope with the competition. I couldn't cope with the teammates. And I... And Lance Armstrong, the guy I wrote about, is obviously that too. Right. And and you can see why. I mean, the writer analogy, if writing was that profession, we would all be taking the drugs to allow us to do it a little bit better. I mean, it's almost that question, why would you not take the drugs in that line of business, even if it could give you a slight advantage? Because those slight advantages, you would take anything you could get. I mean, it it, it was totally explicable to me why cycling just right. was awash with it. Of course it is. Not least because the margins really are fine, like you say, in writing yeah. or not. But And it's financially just the tiniest extra step takes you from here to that place where suddenly the money is just turned on a tap. Right. You, you write, I think, about Tyler Hamilton getting a six-figure salary instead of having to, what, scrape by on a kind of student stipendium or something yeah. like that. So have you been, what, so we're speaking now, the NBA finals are maybe one game away from yeah. completion. Yes. And they're being played without 
crowds. Um, I'm watching the French Open tennis at the moment. It's this weird thing that you can hear in a different way. So you, I was watching Djokovic scream at his coach in the what way did, that what he did used he scream? to. He was, it was in Serbian. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I assume it was Serbian. Yeah. I don't know what it was. And you know, Murray used to do that too. But there's a difference between when they're screaming with 20,000 people watching and it's just echoing around. Yeah. I haven't been watching the NBA. Have, have you been watching the... I have been, yeah. Final? I'm slightly obsessed So what's it like? I mean, there's a bit of fake crowd noise, is there, on the TV coverage? There is. But is there, is there any sense that you're closer to it without the crowd? Or is it more... Does it feel more hollow, more empty? No. I mean, for me, it feels a little bit like, you know, when you play... There's a there's a culture in basketball called pickup basketball where you show up at the park and there's a game going on and you figure out who's got next, which means who's the guy on the sideline who gets to control who comes in on the next team that plays the winners. And you're all standing around and you're looking at the game and you're trying to feel out how good the game is. And without the crowds there and it's just guys in a gym running up and down, it feels a little more intimate hmm. in that way. I think there's a sense among NBA journalists that it didn't matter in the opening rounds, but as the stakes get higher and you get closer to the finals and then in the finals, there's something missing. And part of that is just the enormous uh, ramping up of the pressure that the players would have to deal with if they were facing media in the same way, if the crowds were there, if the noise was there. And so I wonder if it might be a little bit easier on some of the rookies and the less experienced players because it's not there. That was there in the last dance. I mean, you really could feel it. Yeah. That that season, the final shot that Jordan hit or sank, whatever you say in basketball. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the, the, the beauty of it was the volume of people and the volume of pressure, um, which you couldn't replicate that this season. No. I mean, also, I should say about that, that's such a beautiful ending. Hmm. I don't mean to the last dance. I mean to Jordan's sort of second career. He then came back, which is why I got to watch him. And people can argue about whether that tarnishes the perfection of what he did at the end. But that last minute of basketball he played, it's very hard to control the script in sports and to give that kind of polish to what you do because there are nine other guys trying to stop you from doing it. And it just was ridiculous. I mean, those mm. that last minute against Utah where every single minor decision he made played out perfectly and he carry the team on his back to win. So that intensity won't be there anymore. What's at, what's at stake now in the NBA is that LeBron James looks like he's about to win his fourth championship. And there's a kind of live question now in America about whether LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan. And this is also happening. It's It's been politicized in ways that weren't true. And that this is one of the rumbling background questions with Jordan. Why was he not more political? Right. It is now a lot more political for all sorts of reasons. It's sort of a more politicized sport happening without spectators. Yeah. Does any of that come across in in the coverage? And you watch it. Does it does it feel there's something else at stake here? Because there's a there's a sort of background conversation going on about basketball and politics and race, which wasn't there in 1997. No, or if it was, right. it was so far in the background, no one could hear it. Yeah, it comes across. I mean, the, the announcers talk about it. Uh, a lot of the announcers are former players who are friends with the current players and, and they want to talk about it. And the NBA has been a, a, a big force for good, at least in the causes that I tend to tend to like. There's a story also that Jordan got involved, that the players were going to boycott the rest of the 
playoffs because they couldn't face playing basketball while all these terrible things were going on in the country and that Jordan was one of the voices who mediated between the owners because he's now an owner and and the players and persuaded them to to keep going. Basketball is a really interesting sport in America because I don't know what the percentage is anymore. I once looked it up. It's something, you know, the players are something like 75%, 80% African-American. And so you have, on the one hand, a very, it's a very liberal sport, very hip sport, a very progressive ownership. It wasn't always true, but it's increasingly true. And at the core of it, you have this very strange story about race that actually people don't want to talk about. Why is basketball so black? What effect does that have on different levels of the game? And it's playing out now against the backdrop of all the things that are happening in the country. One of the extraordinary things about basketball in its history is that in the 20s and 30s, it was thought to be the Jewish sport. Right, right. <laughs> and then there were all these racist theories around it, that it was a sport that was designed to advantage Jewish players because of their cunning. You know, it was it fueled a kind of weird sporting anti-Semitism, which now seems almost impossible to recreate. What it was, was a sp- it was a ghetto sport, and right. it was a sport for people who are disadvantaged. Right. Um, and now we're, you know, we're, we're in a completely different place. But it's, uh, it's an extraordinary history, the history of basketball, and how that side of it has changed. Yeah, it is. In college, I, I think I was in college when the movie White Men Can't Jump came out. And race was a sort of explicit part of how players dealt with playing against each other. They would talk openly about it. I think that conversation has shifted, mostly for the better. But in some ways, things are buried that used to be on the surface as well. And when I was a kid... It never occurred to me that I could grow up to dunk a basketball. Even though I was always the tallest kid in my class, it just, you know, my dad was a Nebuchadnezzar six foot Jew. And it's not like I had any role models that I could follow. And then it wasn't until I was like 16 or 17, I suddenly thought, maybe you can do this. And it turns out that that awareness is a big part of being able to do it. Can I ask you about a different kind of writing? Because so the, the LRB collection is nonfiction, although some of it strays close to. You know, it's, it's all storytelling. That's what I say in my introduction. It's all storytelling. But you do, as you said, you, you've written novels where sport plays a significant part. So I was looking at the Guardian review of your um, basketball novel, and it says the two hardest things for novelists to write about, it begins by saying, uh, are sport and sex. <laughs> They're the two things that, that defeat almost all novelists. So um, I'll ask you about the sport bit of that. So what's the difference in your experience between sports writing when you're doing it as and I think there's a quite a big overlap, but between nonfiction and fiction, what's the challenge of sport in fiction? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think the basic challenge is that what makes sports interesting is that the player actually has to do the thing that they do, and that this thing is hard, and there's all kinds of gravity holding them back. But if Beckham curls the free kick in against Greece to allow England to go to the World Cup, it's because he spent the hours and hours practicing it and he gets the flight right and the wall is aligned in a certain way. And as a writer, it is just easy to make that stuff up. And so you have this gap between how difficult the thing actually is and how easy it is to imagine and part of what being a spectator of the real sport is that you know it's real. And so you have to try to figure out ways to cope with the fact that it's very easy for you to come up with these extraordinary achievements. The other part that I think is difficult is just the technical part. And that 
to describe sports in a way that I want to means giving a technical account of what I think is going on and shapes the play. And that's what they call in publishing circles, very inside baseball. <laughs> what appetite in your reader you can appeal to that means that they're going to want to know the actual language of this stuff as opposed to sort of the sentimental way that it can get talked about from the outside. So outside of your own writing, what's the, who are the people who you think have, have mastered sport in fiction? I mean, do you think, so, so the, the, I think again, it was in the Guardian Review, the comparison, Rabbit Run is a novel about basketball and yeah. a novel about sex, but it's not for most people actually a novel about basketball, but um, it does play an important part in that. But I don't think people would think of it as a sports novel. Would you think of Rabbit Run as a sports novel? Semi-demi. Semi-demi. Uh, I mean, it's the opening scene, of course, is Rabbit comes back after work and plays with some kids um, yeah. on the street. And Updike, I think, was the son of a high school basketball coach. So even if the game has changed a lot since he was writing about it, and I'm not always sure that he would have been that good a basketball player himself, he gets some things exactly right. And and the kind of core of the Rabbit books is that Rabbit has to come to terms with the fact that once you've been first rated at anything, it's hard to be second rated at everything else. Right? That's the kind mm -hmm. of transition that drives Rabbit in that opening book. And that's a core sports insight. Now, you spend your first 20 years being the best at something, and then you go off and join the workforce, and you're mediocre at everything else. They're the Richard Ford books, uh, the, the Frank Baskin books. He writes more from the point of view of the sports writer than the athlete. Yeah, I mean, so that's yeah, exactly that's uh, fiction writing about sports writing. I right. agree, they're wonderful. But th he also writes about sports writers writing and engaging with athletes. Yeah. And I think he says early in the sports writer that the, the core thing you learn from sports is to cope with regret, searing regret. And I wonder if that's true. It's powerful, but I, I wonder if it's true. Do you have regrets from your time in Germany? Oh, God, I, I have so much pent up frustration, not just about the time in Germany, but my whole sporting really? career, such as it was. It's just nothing but frustration because you just keep losing and other people are better than you. They're just better. And there is no consolation in those games where you were better than them. I mean, you, you don't get to play professional basketball in Germany. I mean, presumably in college, you were good and your team used to win, right? Uh, so uh, my, my... I hope, I hope. <laughs> My my uh, sporting high was in grad school at Oxford. After I'd quit playing in Germany, I played on the, the university team. That was about as good as it got for me. Oh, there's lots of constellation. And I'm, I'm, I'm so childish, too. I, I Before the pandemic hit, I was in a kind of weekly dad's game. And if I played well on the Tuesday night, I really couldn't sleep for two nights because that's all I would think about. And if I played badly, I really couldn't sleep because that's all I would think about. And it's just sad. I mean, it's just, you should outgrow this stuff. So to finish, the, the, the LRB collection, I'll tell people where they can get it in a second. So it's about lots of different sports and different kinds of sport. Um, so part of the reason in the introduction I say that athletes aren't that good at maybe describing what it's like is that one of the essays is about Seabiscuit, the horse, who really was bad at describing <laughs> what it was like to win. But it's a great, you know, it's great sports writing. It's sports writing about sports writing. There's all sorts of... Um, do you think, so I'm one of those completely ecumenical sports fans. I think you can find the story in anything. You have to know a little bit about how the sport works. But once you know enough, the stories are everywhere. But there's one, so basketball, there's one sport that you know better because you played it really well. 
And when you watch it, presumably you watch it in a different way. And when you read about it, the things that don't quite ring true. So he said, Updike got it right. So I wouldn't know if he got it right. Right. So when you watch or read about basketball, is it different from the other sports? Or do you feel like me in the end, the stories win out? Have you read Moneyball? Yeah. I really like Moneyball. I and think I wrote about it in the LLB. You wrote about the LLB, yeah. And one of the things I, I find, one of the, sort of the arguments that Lewis is making in Moneyball is that everybody has a different story about what goes on in a sport, in life, in anything, in politics too. Yeah. And that Moneyball is an argument that the stories that are more right win. It's sort of an argument against the relativity of stories, that not all stories are equal. Some people tell stories that are basically true, and the people who act on those stories win, and the people who act on the stories that are basically false lose. Um, so the example of Moneyball is that all the scouts sit around the table evaluating talent and and one will of, and all that right and one of the scouts says well this guy he doesn't have a the right kind of body or his girlfriend isn't good looking so we can't trust him and the other kind of present in the room is the numbers nerd who just looks at the numbers and the story is the numbers nerd is right and these other guys are wrong uh, and i think what's compelling about all sports writing and a lot of these articles in this in this book is that it's it's trying to be an account of what's actually going on and because it's sport you have a little bit more manifestation than you do in other areas of life. Um, I think that the, the real sort of charm of sports is that it's almost knowable, whereas yeah. politics seems to be totally unknowable. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I mean, the other thing I took from Moneyball is that, so the numbers guy, that story is pulling against, because we want to create a narrative. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bit like the hot hand. We want to we want to overlay it with what we think of as a story that has an arc to it. Yes. And the, the number story, often you have to kind of park your desire for it to be a story that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why it was so hard. Now everyone's doing it, but there was so much cultural resistance to letting the, the Harvard MBA guy with his spreadsheets tell the story because it's not a story. It's just, you know, the scouts were storytellers. They could say the girlfriend of this yeah. or that. And the, the Harvard nerdy guy, he wasn't, it didn't have a beginning, a middle and an end. It didn't have a moral. It didn't have a payoff. It didn't have the good guys win the bad. It was just numbers. So what's, what's, um, what's funny about the, the irony of the book, of course, is that Michael Lewis is a really professional storyteller yeah. who frames everything in terms of the beginning, middle, the end. So the point that you're almost suspicious of what he's doing. Um, I want to say they, they can cut this from the, from the podcast, but I want to have the hot hand conversation very briefly because my understanding is that it's being revised and that the latest numbers nerds are actually saying that the people on which the original study was based, which I think was uh, in Cornell, when they looked at the disposition of makes and misses of uh, the Cornell basketball team, actually got some of the math wrong. And that the intuition that players have always had, which is that sometimes you're on and sometimes you're off, turns out to probably be right. Okay. Because it, it, it is such a weird thing, because everyone who's ever played sports knows that sometimes you're hot and sometimes you're not. Uh, and then for a while, the, cons the, sort of the nerd consensus was you're just yeah. deluding yeah, yourself. It's an illusion. You, you just, you're in a statistical sequence that's meaningful for you, but take one step back and it's random. Right. But it turns out you think that actually so I think it's not what quite did, as random as it looks. I think what happened was they looked at the likelihood of making a shot after you've made three straight, and they... It turned out that you, mm. but it, it, the, that, it reverts to the mean, yeah. Right. Well, actually, but that involves a lot of bias because 
if you look at a sequence in which someone's made three straight, you're not you're looking at the third shot, not the first or the second shot. And so that there aren't that many sequences in which people have made eight straight or ten straight. And mm. so by looking at the fourth shot in the sequence, it turns out you're going to have a lower than average chance of making the shot. Something like that. I'm not a right. mathematician. Yeah. And so that when they when they they plug the numbers in again, it turned out that the Cornell players were in fact making the fourth shot in the sequence more often than you would expect them to. The other kind of, uh, maybe this is more of a philosophical point, is that if you flip a coin, let's say you're a 50% shooter, which is a fairly normal shooter to be. If you flip a coin and it lands on heads five times in a row, you haven't actually done anything right. You've just gotten lucky. But if you take a three-pointer and make five straight, it's because you did something right. And so the reason you feel hot is because mm. five straight times yeah. you went through the perfect motion to do it. And so when the hot hand people come in and say, actually, no, you're just getting lucky, they're clearly making a kind of category mistake because they haven't understood what the it's process is. It's not tossing is. a coin. Yeah. It's, it's not, not tossing a coin. You had to do it right. And so part of the feeling of the hot hand is this memory of rightness, which isn't an illusion. It's just, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I wrote about the hot hand back in the days when we hadn't done the full analysis. Right. So I, I fell for the story that it was just a, an illusion. Well, it's, These it's such poor a, saps who think that they're hot, they're not hot. They're just they're just data points. It's such a compelling story because it's, you have these analysts who do the deeper dive and tell you yeah. that the thing you think you're feeling, you're not actually, you know. Yeah, no, I remember emailing one of the, the statisticians who did it and he sent me a very patronizing response like of course it's not real yes you know, like, you know, it's basic maths yes. as you say it's not actually maths it's sport right and i so i wanted to say one other thing as well yeah. which is what you said about politics so the other area where you can do it is finance so that's why michael lewis right. is so interesting right. so you can you have exactly the same kind of thing that people want to tell stories about the market and actually the winning story is the story that knows not to fall for the illusion of stories. And I think what you say about politics is so interesting. So Michael Lewis's last book, which was about Trump and the the you know the, the administration, the administrative state, you can't do that in a way. It's just it's all stories all the way down. Yeah. Um and I think he found it hard actually. He wanted you know he wanted there to be that aspect to it. And it's not there in politics. In the end in politics it could just be that the the guy with the best narrative wins. Yeah, and actually one of the ways of thinking about the mess that America's in now is is the culture capable of producing the right way of thinking about anything? And at a certain point when the symbolic entrenchment gets deep enough, you're just missing the point if you're trying to get the data right because there's just so much stuff that you're ignoring. Good. Well, all sports writing in the end seems to me to get to politics. <laughs> I like it. Or the other way around. I actually more often start writing about politics and end up writing about sport. The collection of sports writing from the LRB, which is called Anyone for Gully Dander, that is a reference to cricket. Uh, it's going to be out later this month. You can pre-order it at lrb.me slash sport. And you can also get other LRB anthologies at the website too. And thank you very much to Ben as well. Thank I you. really enjoyed that conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.